Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hey, really? Yeah, hey, really? Oh, really? So what does Dave Edmonds call it? The monkey beat. Monkey so, beat. Monkey beat. And that's the sort of umchuck, it's umchuck, umchuck. It's, it's the kind of up and down beat of the Chuck Berry song. You which see, which he, he obviously feels that he has mastered, probably to an extent even greater than Chuck Berry himself, but that the, you know... Hapless workshop, Keith Richards. <laughs> hasn't quite got the hang of. I don't think it's a question of haplessness or workshyness, but I think Dave Edmonds, it's really interesting. I was listening to this podcast, uh, 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 Walk in the West End, in the, in the lovely sunny weather. I was very much enjoying it. And I, th- I thought it brought up all sorts of issues about the kind of politics of, of uh, you know, onstage guesting and all kinds of things. But also, the thing that struck me was on that stage, you had arguably. The two greatest practitioners of the kind of Chuck, Chuck Berry adaptation that there are. Outside of Chuck himself. Outside of Chuck himself. Absolutely. He doesn't adapt his own material at all. You know, Chuck never goes back and does anything in a different way. So, you know, Dave Edmonds. Dave Edmonds has done some brilliant versions of Chuck Berry songs. Oh, he has. He's done, he doesn't, there is one of the, I'm a, I'm a connoisseur of Chuck Berry cover versions. And one of the great ones is Dave Edmonds' version of uh, The Promised Land recorded in the chicken coop at Rockfield Studios when they were just setting it up. He does it on his own, pretty much. And it's absolutely brilliant. And the other great Chuck Berry um, uh, cover version, which I was reminded of recently, is on the B-side of, I think, Brown Sugar, which is the Rolling Stones version of Let It Rock, recorded at Leeds University, which is absolutely brilliant. So Dave Edmonds clearly thought, this man's on my turf. You know what I mean? There's, but there's two issues. There's two issues. One is the present and very real danger of uh, Keith Richards in some way, as you say, disrupting the the dynamic of a, of a set that they've... I mean, you know, Rockpile were a terrific group with some very nice comments on the thread, actually. To this they were effect, fantastic. People who saw, they were a fantastic group. Terry Williams so, on drums. In some ways, he's thinking, look, we've got this show, we know exactly what we're doing. Uh, do we want Keith Richards? Well, if we do, we want him at the end. And now they're in this situation where they've it's got to go on with Keith Richards. So that's point oh. one. But point two, as Nick, I think, alludes to, I can't remember now, but that there is history. 
you know, back in yes. the day, Rolling Stones had toured England or Wales or something, and whatever group it would be, not Love Sculpture, what group would... Uh, I can't remember Dave the name of the group. Dave Evans is in the support group, supporting yeah. the Rolling Stones, and clearly thinks... What the fuck is this? I'm better than these guys, and, and maybe th- maybe they didn't give him a very big dressing room. And you know, I, think might da- be, I don't know. I'm, to I'm, be I'm, fair, Dave Edmonds, uh, by by repute, not blessed with a forgiving nature. No, he's he um, he's fairly uh, direct in the way he expresses himself, <laughs> as in fact evidenced by what he says about getting <laughs> oh, this bloke off the stage, which, which is, is hilarious. Just brilliant. I thought it was a fantastic <laughs> story, and it, it confirmed what I've always suspected about about kind of on-stage guesting, that, that in the world of rock and roll, nobody lays down the ground rules. They just kind of hope it'll all work out. You know what I mean? Come and have a jam. Come and play a tune. You know what I mean? And they sort of hope it'll be all right. They rely on the good taste and decorum of the person guesting Completely. to know when to go on oh, and when got... to go off. And Keith's not like that. It's got all, all, all manner of very complicated etiquette. <laughs> Bound into it, you know. You've got to be grateful. You've got to come on. You've got your little spot in the in, in the in, in the spotlight, a little moment in the sun. But you can't overshadow. No, the group. absolutely. Don't stick. But, you know, I've seen Bruce Springsteen come on stage with people. I think I saw him come on stage with Cheryl Crow. I think you're thinking of Lucinda Williams. You oh no, I, it was you and I no, saw no, him playing rhythm right. guitar with Lucinda yeah. Williams. Oh gosh, easy mistake to make. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not really. <laughs> but uh, no, I thought it, and I thought it was absolutely fantastic, extraordinary story told in great detail by, by Nick Lowe uh, on the. And I very much enjoyed listening to the podcast. Very unusual for me listening to the podcast not having been on it. I know, it's very I know, odd. But Dave, so, you must explain. You have been much missed, <laughs> and I've actually had oh, and I've had uh, you know a couple of weeks of fielding um, you know anxious emails and and, uh, and text messages from people saying Dave has tweeted or Dave has written on his blog. Um, you know that he's had an operation. You know, is he all right? Well, actually, I think to be fair, what you actually said was I've had a minor, op- I think a minor I, operation. I, I went out of my way to call it a trifling operation. A trifling which operation. Is a, but just, then I think that worked against you. They thought you were being terribly brave. <laughs> well, well, let me make it clear. You know, it, yeah. I'm not brave at all. You know, I'm not <laughs> the one to be brave at all about this thing. It was a completely trifling operation. What did they but, do to you? Did you tell the listeners oh, what they did? They to you? I've had this operation. They supposedly myself. sorted out my sinuses, so now I'm supposed to be able to sing like Pavarotti. Have you tried? <laughs> no, not. Yes, it's going to wait a while. Uh, and then I had to stay at home for two weeks in order to avoid picking up a cold or anything like that from anybody else. So, you know, Fraser and I were trying to work out today, trying to get this bit of software for the, the, within your iPhone that supposedly tracks your geographical whereabouts. Yeah. Because I'm probably the only person who will moved. be in exactly the <laughs> yeah. same place. To be with he's dead. <laughs> he hasn't moved for two weeks. So I had two weeks. First week was on steroids. Um, God, what's that? Did you develop enormous muscles or put on no, a few stones? No, it just makes you... Did you grow eat, breasts? You... <laughs> <laughs> well, we were going to say that. You like that. Yes, we <laughs> did. <laughs> you're afraid no, like a I'm a sick man. You're a sick, I, sick but man. boy, it makes you eat like a horse. What, steroids makes you oh, eat? Oh, my crikey. You can see where those kind of rugby players who suddenly double in size. You know, how so you have a full English and then you, know, oh, you just dab your mouth with a yeah, napkin. You, you, and yeah, yeah. Somebody says, would you like another three fried eggs? You go, yes. It's a raging furnace of hunger going Christ. through you. It's an absolutely extraordinary thing. It's like being you, Kate Mossman and Juliet Cromwell and Fraser Lurie all, all wrapped together. All people persons. known for having, you know, Healthy appetite. Four meals a day. Four meals a day. But anyway, I'm back. Why do they give you steroids? I don't understand. What, what, I think it's one of those things to build you up again about after an operation. Oh, right. Is that standard procedure now, is it? 
I don't know. Don't ask me. I'm not a regular visitor to hospitals. But talking to people who are back from illness, delighted to see Danny Baker back. What did on, he say? Something terribly live, funny on the... On London Live this week. I heard him on the Monday, which I think was his first day back in five months or something like that. And God bless Danny... He went on the radio and he clearly hadn't spent the intervening five months planning what he was going to do on the <laughs> no, radio. No, that, it was completely... It was freewheeling. busking absolutely yeah, all the, just... And it was brilliant. But I think he said at one point that, you know, it's been worth it to be, to be uh, dubbed cancer DJ by the start. Yeah, cancer DJ Danny Baker. That's right, <laughs> It's like... Uh, anyway, I'm sure everybody's absolutely delighted. It's like Ginger Winker and Robinson's with those <laughs> ridiculous things. So he's cancer DJ. Well, yeah. so what just have you DJ been... now, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, God bless him. Yeah. Um, so what have you been up to? What, what, have, been we, what have we been doing? We've, we've been producing the marvellous edition of Word 100, which is very nearly finished, actually. And we've been... Is that the microwave going off? I was listening to the podcast. I was listening in the Nick Lowe, and I, and I could clearly hear the microwave pinging regularly. I, just I, didn't I never know what it was. I thought I was too polite. I thought maybe he had an electronic device in his pocket or something. <laughs> or maybe it was some ma- his manager saying, I'm listening in and don't say that about Edmund. No, so somebody's some pizza's done. But actually, somebody's probably you know, steaming some broccoli. I think yeah, we've, we've had complaints about the microwave. Are we about the microwave? Yeah. Oh, we? Christ. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Actually. So anyway, go on. So, well, what we did do, we're finishing 100. Oh, gosh, a lot's going on. And uh, uh, I've been to America. All be revealed. Oh, yeah. But I um, been been to America, readers. Yes, Yes. uh, for World Hundred, and also um, we have interviewed the very lovely Delta Maid, which we should play. Who's on the Who's on the current current CD? CD ninety nine of the track, I think, called Running on Empty. Very good, actually. Not the Jackson Brown song. Not the Jackson Brown song. She came in the other day. It was very good value, and I can't actually remember how we started. But I I imagine we probably said something (laughs) cliched like "Welcome to the fashion cupboard, Delta Maid." So, welcome to the fashion cupboard. Uh, Thank you. Delta Maid, how very (laughs) nice to have you. Kate Mossman and I are here to grill you, likely grill you, about the story of Delta Maid and did the music you're about to play us. So what can you tell you? You're from Liverpool? I am from Liverpool, yeah. Um, I'm from Wavertree in Liverpool, which is south Liverpool. And what's that near? What's this? I'm not familiar with the Liverpool terrain. What's the what, what's the nearest mm, landmark? landmark? Landmark. I'm trying to think. Um, there's a lot of like little shopping centres, <laughs> like everywhere else. It's like by a clock, famous clock called Picton Clock. It's got a lot of like really historic uh, history behind, sort of mm. Wavertree area. Um, but I can't. I don't really know. But when you it. you say history, I mean, when you're walking around Liverpool, you must think this is the great city that produced Wah Heat, uh, Big in Japan, obviously, Funny <laughs> Man, and the, and the, the you know the stairs. You must think, do you just wake up every morning and some other people. I don't know. Do you wake up and think, wow, I'm so lucky? Um. It's funny because when you're from there, you don't you don't think like that, and it's only when you come out of Liverpool and people like are talking about it, it's like obviously a conversation piece that um that you think oh yeah I am from sort of such a cultural like place, but yeah I do like being from Liverpool. It's it's nice. I wanted to ask you about. I heard that your your grandpa was a stoker on the ships. Is that true? He was. Yeah, yeah. we've got like um quite a long line of like seafarers but they didn't do anything spectacular i mean he was a stoker which was probably yeah. the worst position to have so where did they go to did they go to the states they went to a state an awful lot yeah. yeah and that's how like sort of they brought back a lot of records but i think that's the story behind a lot of families in liverpool you know they bring back all the old records and 
there's that whole saying, you know, we got them first, and yeah. that's being a bit, a little bit arrogant. But um, so would he bring back um, 45? Yeah, like a lot of Hank Williams and um, the Mills Brothers. But and it's people true. Like I that. think it's true, isn't it? You know, the, 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 all the first rock and roll records that came back in the very early 60s and were played on fairgrounds, weren't they? I think yeah. in, in Liverpool. So that, that before they were available in shops, and before the they whole were mechanical actually... arm coming coming out. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful yeah. idea, isn't it? Yeah. So did you know him when you were a kid then? I didn't know that was my great grandfather, right, yeah. but. Um, his sons were also like uh, seafarers as well so it was always like as a kid I can remember oh this this is from such and such and we got these records back from such and such you know and I suppose that's where the love of like that genre of music sort of developed from Mm. from their love and them bringing the records back. And do you feel there's some sort of connection between Liverpool? And you're very interested in bluegrass and very interested in, in blues and, and old country music. And you know, did you feel there's a connection somehow between the two the geographical areas of blues? Um, and... I think I'm, I always get asked that question, and I'm always trying to think why. But I, I mean, I come from quite a like a Celtic background as well. Like a lot of family are from like Ireland, and I know a lot of people in Ireland love country music. And mm. I think there's a big similarity between country music and Irish music really and um, whatever reason I've always loved Irish music and it does something to me likewise the same feeling I get when I hear country music so in that sense yeah and then it's also I always find like a lot of the blues songs are quite like simplistic in the lyrics and stuff like that it's a lot very like colloquial like language Mm. and it's sort of like that's the way we speak, you know. We don't really speak properly in that sense, <laughs> and um, it's just like the way, your way of going on, and it's just like it reminds you of home. So in that yeah. sense, I think you can link the two together. What in was my the head, first old blues song you heard when you were growing up? Did you? Was there anything in particular that stood out from the early um, guys from the forties, thirties, and forties? Well, my mum and dad um, sort of brought me up on a diet of like. Hank Williams and Patty Klein and people like that, and then they loved modern blues players like Stevie Ray Vaughan, BB mm. uh, yeah. King. So they weren't really into the really old like Delta blues stuff. It was only until I got um, Rory Block CD when I think oh, it's about yeah. thirteen or fourteen, and um, that's when I first heard. Obviously, not the the original stuff, but hear like sort of interpretation of of that music and. That's when my eyes were sort of open to it. And I was like, oh, I can't believe, what is this, you know? And that's when I sort of, at that age, went back and sort of looked into all the sort of old Delta Blues players. So I think Robert Johnson was like, because obviously Rory Block is obsessed by (laughs) Robert Johnson. Um, I looked into him because she was obviously, like, infatuated by him. And then it just sort of, like, built from there. So I think Robert Johnson, like, was the first sort of port of call. Well, you're going to play a song uh, in a moment. Now, what I mean, the difficult thing I would imagine to try to make a mark now, uh, a girl with acoustic guitar, is, is there are so many girls with acoustic guitars. What, <laughs> you, you've got to sell yourself to us. What, what, what have you brought to, to, uh, to, to the idea of, uh, of, of a, a solo act with acoustic guitar? That's quite difficult, but um, <laughs> I don't suppose there's a lot of like country blues artists here in that sense doing what I'm doing um, which is a bit of a different thing but I always say I'm not a purist in the sense that I don't 
I can't play Delta Blues guitar or stuff like that, Slide you know. Yeah, I you know, I'm just I've just got a massive love for it and I've sort of I write crossover tunes really and it it's just like I'm influenced by that sort of genre of music and although, although the name Delta made people think who the hell does she think she is thinking she's some blues queen. <laughs> um it's sort of just like it's a homage to the name to that, but also it's like I'm writing crossover song. I'm trying to interpret the music in my own sense, and um, I'm just influenced by that. And hopefully, that's the point of difference that I can do crossover tunes with that influence in it. Mm. Fantastic! So, the song, what's the song? Is it "Broken Branches"? Broken Branches, yeah. I've broken branches just to hear the song. When it breaks and hits the ground Now is there the same thing, baby The same kind of thing you do to me Well, I know that I'm cynical And my judgment can be wrong but there's no denying, baby, I've been right all along. Have my eyes open, right between the lines. You know a man like you is so easy to define. You're all and a fool creator when it comes to loving me. You're my Politician playing tricks, oh baby, on me. Take your books, your charming good looks, and leave my be. See, I don't need no dictator, dictating his rules on pay. Never agree. Things I did not understand To keep the peace Just sit back and withstand It all Now is there the same thing Baby, the same kind of thing You do to me My judgment can be wrong But there's no denying, baby I've been right all along Have my eyes open Right between the lines You know a man like you Is so easy to define You're all a the fool creator When it comes to loving me
Fantastic. Thank you very much. The Word Podcast. From Marconi to DLT to this. So, as I've said many times previously on the podcast, I keep nothing, you know. There is, you know, I, I adopt the, you know, the Bob Dylan maxim. Don't look back, you know. I don't keep any press clippings or anything like no, that. No, you're not a hoarder. Oh, no, no, I'm not. Whereas Mark Ellen, Mark Ellen has, next to his house, there's a smaller house, actually. It's like a larger house. <laughs> bigger, bigger my house. <laughs> which, is, which has got a board outside, and it says, it's the Mark Ellen Museum. Yeah. It's open, you know, just Museum for a couple of... Museum of Mark. <laughs> for a couple of hours every day. Museum of Mr. Music. <laughs> TV's Mr. <laughs> where, where he keeps every single bit of half-baked doggerel that he ever tapped out I have, on, I've had on the, a typewriter. The phone's been burning recently because Andy Kershaw was writing his autobiography. Oh, so he wants like you, has, he wants to know. It's like relationship between Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. You're his memory. Yeah, yeah. I'm going, well, we did do a programme on so I've got the notes here, so I've got the lot. I don't but know, you brought we... in, Mark, because you were talking well, about this. I brought it in because we were talking uh, yesterday actually about about the number of groups we'd been to see and i remember saying to you that I, I, there was one particular week which i noticed in my diary that i kept in 1978 when i worked for new music express there's one week where i saw 24 bands 24 bands well, let's talk about your diary first was it a kind of friends forever or mr men diary or oh god it probably was well, yeah i can't remember it's up, <laughs> up in the attic now yeah it would have been something terrible <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Happy or Mr. Gig. So, sorry. <laughs> so a great big rotund icon with a sort of leather, leather jacket on and a can of beer. <laughs> so, how many gigs again? It, I saw 20, it was in seven consecutive days. I saw groups. 24 groups. And you know, Obviously, 11 of those were on one day. Okay. And I know it's because so I you're going to give us this. Well, I can tell you what the groups were. All, all, I think pretty much, well, I can't tell you the some sport groups. I can tell you most of them. I can tell you that at the Reading Festival... Um, August 1978. I wonder if anybody listening was there. Oh, my God. God. Well, I was, you know, oddly enough, you know, I'm not a big festival goer. No, were you there? Well, you, maybe you were. Was that when Greg Ken played the Reading? No, played Reading well, not the, the day I, not the day I was there. Was the status quo headlining on the Saturday? Probably, you know. I went. I only did the Friday. I went on the Saturday. I the only time I've ever been to Reading. Oh, Fraser my. goes all the time, don't you, Fraser? Oh, I've been to 19, but then I stopped. 19. Fraser was Reading. born at Reading. <laughs> 19 1. Behind a huge burger truck. Yes. <laughs> he was in wrapped, a in a, spin. wrapped in a black, black plastic. He was. Given the straw was stuck into a can of party for and like, 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 just like, off, like, like Moses in the bulrushes. He was <laughs> pushed out of a huge muddy puddle in an empty uh, uh, pizza box. <laughs> <laughs> He's been looking for the St John's ambulance. <laughs> But uh, no, the headline of the uh, uh, the piece is Boogie Booze and Beer Cans. Mark Ellen, Max Bell and Graham Locke taking a way day to Reading. This is the enemy. Dunkirk, yeah, Dunkirk spirit. Music for the criminally insane and other fine jazz for a summer's weekend. Bank holiday snaps. Penny Smith. Yeah. And the groups I saw were Dennis O'Brien, followed Dennis, by the automatic. Dennis O'Brien. Dennis O'Brien. I can tell you what I said about Dennis, Dennis O'Brien. Because obviously it was a very violent time because over the page... Is my review of the Stranglers. Actually, I might read a bit of that out because it's so ludicrous. But evidently, this was the absolute height of can-throwing violence at uh, concerts. Yeah. So I start my review by saying, with the punks fronting stage right and the skinhead stage left, the 18th Reading Rock Festival kicked off with target practice at 3.30 featuring Dennis O'Brien, the grand piano. 
together with his multiracial backing band and three lady vocalists. <laughs> yes. I don't, lady. I don't know which is most kind of oh, unpc multiracial oh, or lady. awful, is it? <laughs> and it's kind of all right, road camp. I know. It's we all, do look, we do I look, know, we I look know. back with great fondness no, 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 the days no, no, when no, gigs wait, were no, violent. Wait, I say he, he played a selection of West Coast schmaltz with a smattering of Las Vegas rock and roll. It was exceptionally dire. And great, gracefully received with a shower of beer cans. Dan, now, all the way well, through, he never worked again. I'd never heard of him. No, well, all the way through, what well, he read this review and thought, you know what, there's no point. <laughs> set up, set Mark up, Ellen, match twenty-three. Was it the New England Express? Yeah, Ellen's so, got my number. He's got my number. So yeah, so all the way through this, like, I, I, I seem to applaud the fact that people are throwing cans till the point where actually the press enclosure is overrun. And uh, blooded members of New Musical Express's staff are being stretched back. To, I mean, they were exciting times, weren't they? So who else? But after them, no, after them, we had the Automatics. Then there was the New the Hearts. Automatics. Norte, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the New Automatics? Uh, I know. I remember the name. Yeah, the New Hearts were a kind of pop, power pop, punky kind of act signed to Epic. I think. Yeah, New they played Arts. a song called "When the Tanks Roll Over Poland Again." <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> nice, isn't it? God <laughs> almighty! I suppose God. I thought that was great. That's okay, what I am. Or awful man. After, after them, the radio stars, then, of course, the mighty penetration. The radio stars <laughs> who were... Who were uh, Andy Ellison. Andy Ellison. Absolutely made correct. Some, made some good records. Andy Ellison, who used to be John's right. children and Mark Bowen. They it? were. So one of these groups, oh, it was the New Hearts, had three members of Widowmaker, which I have beautifully <laughs> written down. The <laughs> Hugh Lloyd Langton is playing the lead guitar. And the concert is brought to a standstill by a loaded beer can landing squarely on Lloyd Langton's head. Dull. Blood pouring from his wounds. Widowmaker, you know. Yeah, Widowmaker. Classic case of an ER band. Yeah. You know, no group is any good. No group is. Whose name terminates in ER? Widowmaker, actually, Steve Ellis out of Love Affair was the singer of, of Widowmaker. I, I think, think he probably was. I think he was. Uh, go on, who was it? And then after Sorry, I'm throwing was, it. No, no, no. Then after I'm just using whatever knowledge of Then the Sham 69, which is hilarious. Oh, they bring on Sham. Steve Hillage to try and bring the In a sense, when the kids are united. They're trying to unite the kids, Dave. They bring I on think you'll find that when Hillage, the kids are united, they can never be divided. Never be divided. <laughs> never. And had they been divided since? <laughs> never once! <laughs> Because Lord Lord James <laughs> managed to ordain it thus. Do you think we'd, we'd be all right to mention Jimmy Percy? I always used to say when I was going oh, to Christ, smash he, it. He, he Jimmy Percy is the only person I'd like to see never mentioned in this magazine again, either in a favourable or an unfavourable context. He, he threw he, a punch at David Hayes. He's not quite. He pinned me against the door. He certainly did. Percy, if you're listening, anyway. I, you're most, after Sham 69 with the Pirates, is that extraordinary? Johnny Kidd and, and, and Johnny Kidd the Pirates. And then I think Kidd might be demo. No, I think it was Johnny Kidd. And then was a group called... Ultravox. Oh, with uh, Dennis. I said, a band who are new to me and certainly the most interesting to play all day. John, I'm saying Ultravox. That's the John Fox fronted Ultravox. Yeah, the headliners are the jam. And, uh, but so just, that's one day. That's one day. One day, there's 11. And then after that, I saw the autographs at the Hope and Anchor. Each oh, of these what? groups had a support act. Was right? it the autographs? Autographs at the Hope and Anchor. Does that ring any bells? I did. Female singer. I well, don't no, I'm a, I've got that like, completely wrong. I'm I confusing with the photos. Okay, I've got it wrong. Okay, carry well, on. It was the autographs. Then I saw City Boy at the music machine. I have to say, in my five seven oh five. Yeah, five seven oh. Came from seven. Birmingham. Yeah, horrible album sleeve. But this makes you realise that you know people say, oh, you know, I used to work for New Music. But I think, God, that's great. You probably saw the Ramones on a Monday. No, no, no. City know, Boy. Still, yeah, yeah, actually. Little, was a little, little river more, band. A little bit more prosaic than that. <laughs> little river. You were lucky. Wish me <laughs> you, you were very that lucky. That was me. Oh, my God. So, because you were being sent out by the by the paper, it was a job, you know. So I saw the City Boy. Then I saw The Late Show at Dingwalls. Followed the next night at the Rock Garden by a, a group called The Flies, if I can barely remember. Then Local Operator. 
the Windsor Castle, finishing up with a, a, a triumphant flourish, the cherry on this sagging gateau, Barclay <laughs> James Harvest yeah. at the Hammersmith Odeon, who new... were rubbish, Dave. <laughs> I will not have a word said in their favour. <laughs> they were absolutely awful. Interesting uh, thing that they all have in common, everybody on your list, just about, I think, apart from the first, all groups. All groups, very good point. That was a, hey, yes. It must have been a heyday for groups, mustn't it? Yeah, I At that time when kind of punk was turning into... Power was, pop and, and whatever. It was a great time for... Um, look at that picture of the Stranglers. Isn't that funny? Stranglers brought on five naked women uh, oh, on stage. This was on was the 16th of Battersea. It was the 16th of September, 1978. It was the Battersea Park. Uh, yeah, Battersea Park. Uh, <laughs> and I was reviewing it. And I said... Yeah. Did you say something prudy, Mark? I bet you did. Yeah, I did, yeah. <laughs> Peaches, <laughs> No, it? I, I, think think I did, actually. I won't go over. I said five sin-soaked nubiles <laughs> who tried for that all over tan. <laughs> I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> I'm too embarrassed to say naked girls. Yeah, aren't I? yeah. because so Battersea Park full of blokes watching naked women yeah. really, really closely while pretending that they have no yeah, interest. Yeah, I'm going. Oh, yeah, actually, I really wanted to see the strangest <laughs> yeah, play. It's really yeah. boring. That's really yeah. cliche. Yeah, Where is around. it again? Yeah, <laughs> after you with the binoculars. Oh, I no, completely. Just it's so embarrassed. But no, there's one guy that's just it's absolutely typical of how rubbish my writing was, really, and also just what the what, what the times were like. So the stage was cleared for Johnny Rubbish. Do you remember Johnny Rubbish? <laughs> I don't believe Johnny. <laughs> Rubbish, right? He comes on after Spiz Oil and the Skids, Peter Gabriel and The Edge. So he's, in fact, just before The Stranglers. He says, um, uh, Rubbish, it's a risked body and soul and his stringless guitar for a rendition of his McCartney-based anthem, Mud on My Tire. OK, it's pretty weak, isn't it? I don't rate him much as a comedian, says Mark Ellen of the New Music Express, but as a decoy to draw the flack from can-wielding crop heads... Rubbish could well become a permanent festival <laughs> fixture. <laughs> skinheads were such a threat in Three skinheads, yeah. I mean, you know, seriously, it's a big issue. We were talking about it in the office the other day. You know, there was a long period where geeks were just dangerous. They were. Well, we were telling you. They aren't yeah. anymore. Now they cost too much money. Well, the str- I saw the Stranglers uh, about the year before, I think, uh, the famous concert at the, at the Roundhouse, and I had to carry my old mate Huey out, who had broken his ankle. He broke his ankle with a combination of, I suppose, a couple of points. But he was pogoing. Pogoing. And then I think just a hell's angel fell on him. You know, these guys weigh a lot. They really don't, they don't come... You don't get many of them for the pound. <laughs> not your hell's angels. Oh, happy and days. so, yeah. So happy that, was, that was that was a typical week in the life of a new music Express journey in 1978. So I feel, Dave, I feel I've been out in the trenches and I've, I've, I am that foot soldier. Right, I've right. served. I have. So, anyway, coming up to date... Um, we had a second musical guest in the pod this week. I was delighted to see it. I was just absolutely thrilled. Somebody got in touch a couple of weeks ago and said, Daniel Tashin, who is the leader of, frankly, my favourite group in the whole wide world, the Silver Seas from Nashville, Tennessee, who I've droned on about in the pages of Word in the past, uh, was coming over here to do a bunch of writing with, with uh, various artists because he's a, he's a kind of professional songwriter, really, apart from uh, leading the group. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he very kindly agreed to come in into the pod and bring his guitar. And he started off by playing one of my favourite Silver Seas tunes, which is perfect in this kind of weather, The Country Life. <laughs> Song. So 
Lovely, lovely. All the way from Nashville, Tennessee. Daniel Tashin from the Silver Seas. Howdy, howdy. Nice to have you here, Daniel. You played that last night. Now, you did a, you did a small show last night, didn't you? I where, did, where did, yeah. You play? I mean, you could. Ca- I don't know if you would characterize like 15 to 20 people. Would you characterize that as small or... or that? <laughs> Numbers of people. Yeah. Uh, it's intimate, isn't intimate. it? Intimate. Select. Yeah, that's it, select. Yeah, Selective. Yeah. But my fans are the beautiful intelligentsia of London, and there's only a handful of them. So. <laughs> I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be surprised. They are legion. Anyway, you, that, was that the 12-bar club you played? Yeah, 12-bar club. It was great. The sound was great. And Charles, uh, yeah, Andy and uh, Mike Charles, the nice guys over there, they uh, t- took care of me over there. So so this is a brief visit to, to the UK. What are you doing here? Well, uh, writing some songs and um, trying to eat at Wagamama as many times as I can because we don't have Wagamamas. No so. Wagamamas in Tennessee. So I'm trying to get my, my fill of uh, number 13. Right. So to, to just to provide a bit of context, uh, the Silver Seas have <sighs> been occasionally represented on the word CD. I think I've yeah. even gone into print saying they are my favorite group in the world. Which is just beyond kind. And, <laughs> and um, It's all right. You, what's I, wrong with you? <laughs> no, no. And, and I heard Danny Baker, uh, who returned to the radio on London Live this, w- this week. Yeah. I think you're going to be on his show I'm gonna go, soon this yes, week. Yes, that's right. A- and uh, I heard him actually say, the Silver Seas are the best group in the world. Yeah, I feel so, a little uncomfortable with that. especially. You, I, I wouldn't. I, I just don't feel uncomfortable. Especially when the Libertines, are they still together? Doesn't the Libertines? Care. Libertines, yeah. Oh, I see. You, Do we you, care? you think you'd, well, you, you think they Okay, if they're not together anymore, <laughs> then all right. So, listen, a bit of context. I've got to, got to go back here. Um, you, we, don't, we don't know your father, particularly, okay. in the right. UK. Okay. But in the States, yeah. amongst people like us, he would be quite well known, wouldn't he? Well, yes, yeah, among people Explain who, who, yeah, who you Among people is. who have a lot of free time, he would yeah. be definitely well, well known. Um, but no, he, he, um, he, was in, he grew up in um, the East Coast and, and actually came over to London on a school trip in the, in, I guess it would have been the late 50s, and heard a group in a club playing music and then came back. And when he went to college, he started a rock band called The Remains. And um, they who, were, who represented on that Lenny K uh, yeah. compilation nuggets, nuggets of you know that's punk, right. early punk and rock actually, records. Um, yeah, and actually uh, they they were the opening act on the 1966 Beatles tour, and they backed up uh, the Ronettes and backed up Bobby Hebb and were kind of the house band right. for the opening acts, which was cool. And then um, and then he kind of got disillusioned with the rock and roll world and sort of went and made these country records with Graham Parsons, like uh, both of Graham's solo uh, He's on records. Those. He's on oh, both right. of those, singing yes, and playing guitar. And actually, he sings lead vocal on a Graham Parsons song called um, called Cry One More Time. It's actually mm-hmm. not even Graham singing. It's my oh, dad that's singing, the lead, your dad. singing the lead vocal on that <laughs> well, song. Well, I didn't so, know. That's very good stuff. So there's a lot of Graham Parsons fans over here, and so we can do that trivia. But now he's pretty much, pretty much retired, but he still kind of plays sort of folk music and kind of you know, play, plays guitar in the kitchen. Right, and right. He, he, so you grew up surrounded by music. So I, I, I first heard of you that seven or eight years ago when I, I was interviewing Amy Lou Harris. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I said, um, you must have seen a lot of your contemporaries' children grow up mm-hmm. and become musicians. And that must have been an in- interesting you know, thing to, to observe. And she said, oh, yes, well, the one I remember mainly is Barry Attashian. You know, yeah, was yeah. Because yeah. he was in her group, wasn't he? Yeah, that's band. right. He was in the hot band. That's very, man, very well done. No, I, 
I know, but I remember, and if she remembers me, that's that's nice to hear because I thought for for several years of nothing but her because she was this like ethereally beautiful kind of figure in my life that 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 would always sort of remember your birthday and Christmas. But but I also was just like as much in love as a ten year old as you can be. I was just totally in love with her. Right. Um, I mean, it, like she would walk in the room and it was like the sun would come out from behind the clouds. Well, she still know? does that. Does yeah. To be I, fair. To be fair, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, but you took to music quite early on. I mean, you, you say in your biog, mm-hmm. not entirely, presumably tongue in cheek. At fourteen, I was a genius. You say. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 that's a pretty strong word, <laughs> uh, David. But uh, no. But I mean, what I didn't realize the interesting thing was that Emmylou did a lot of covers, and so she would cover Neil Young, and she would cover, you know, um, the, the Williams, Everly Brothers yeah, and Hank yeah, Williams yeah. and stuff. But I thought they were all her songs. Right. When I was a kid, so really, what it was was sort of like a, a a kind of a textbook on songwriting, and I would go to a lot of the concerts and listen to a lot of the songs and learn a lot of the songs um, before I knew who wrote them. Right. Um, but then, you, when did you start writing for yourself? When you were like yeah, about thirteen 14? or fourteen. Right. You know, what and, sort of songs did you write? It was mainly like flailing away on like A minor seven, like like funk. You know, like. <laughs> You know, and like that was kind of the gist of it. Right. You know, um, you know, really, really simple, like really simple stuff that like a lot of people got into. That's why I was saying I was a genius at fourteen because I could play these songs, and then all the high school girls would would completely like you know come out of the woodwork for my band's concerts. Now there's no high school girls <laughs> around, so I've lost the magic. So who touch. was the, who? Were the, what were the names of the early groups? Uh, well, we had let's see, we had the. The Obscurities oh, was my first band. Yeah, The Obscurities. We wanted a French French name. I don't know why <laughs> for a band in Nashville, but we did. So this is Nashville. Yeah. So you're growing up amongst musicians in Nashville. You know, to many people, that's a, a very privileged kind of background. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there you definitely the studios are there, and the the, the crazy thing would be, you know, like I was a, I worked at a bakery for a while, and like you know Don Everly would come by, and I knew what kind of bread he would want, and then what did he want? See, what was his what was he liked, Don Everly's preferred? He liked bread. the uh, he liked the the baguettes, right? Uh, but and then you know you'd see Steve Winwood walking down the walking down the mall, you know, and and so. You, you know, like when when Steve Winwood's first uh, the record that he put out in the in the '80s with the um, you know Higher Love and all that. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah, when yeah. I kind of caught wind to him because because I was you know 11 or 12 and that was like you know big time for me. So it was like seeing a real rock star because I didn't really care about any of the country people really that much. You know, you were, yeah, you were, I cared you were about rock. I cared about Don Everly because my dad kind of seemed like really impressed by him. But but may, I, I was more interested in Steve Winwood. So. so how did you get involved professionally in the music business? Because you made a solo record. Quite a long time ago, didn't you? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I put some songs together, and if you're, you know, if you're not really terrible, and you're like 17 years old, and you put a bunch of songs together, and you're moderately good looking, as both of you can probably attest, the fact <laughs> that I'm sitting here that that, that I'm not bad looking, uh, you can get a record deal, and and I did, but but I but I you know I got I had a pretty good selection of songs, and then. Um, they caught the ear of T-Bone Burnett, and then he stepped forward when I was looking for a producer and volunteered to kind of produce my record, which the job was more kind of to show me how records were made. It was it was really amazing to work with him. And, and um, What was he like to work with? Because nowadays he's the kind of the man with the golden touch, isn't he? Yeah, he but I mean... Well, he, for a long time he wasn't. He was the cult... Well, there was a lot favorite, of like uh, there was a lot of uh, we hear the sound of the door on the microphone if I open it because there was a lot of this. Yeah, That's fine. You hear yeah, try anything. Try of... any. We'll go for any ambient noise. It was like this. 
Turn that background vocal off. <laughs> then he'd be gone. Yeah. <laughs> that was his contribution. <laughs> yeah. No, no, uh, no. But 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 you know, it was. I mean, what was it like? He would tell you a lot of stories, and he would kind of like he would, would be one of those guys that would illustrate a lesson. He was like a teacher. Yes. You know, he would illustrate like a lesson in a in a metaphor. You know, he'd say, you know, nothing is as bad as it seems, but he'd say, but you got to be comfortable with the fact that a lot of things aren't as good as they seem too, if you can accept that, you know, or something like that, you know, and little, little wisdoms that, you know, would, would, could keep you from getting too demoralized because right. making your first record is a really, really painful, How demoralizing process. Young. I was, I was 18 when we started and I went from thinking that I was, imagine an athlete who's like, they're locally like really good tennis player. And then they get up with like the big hitters and that you can't believe the speed of the ball. It's yes. like, it's totally, I was out of my element and I'm in LA around all these amazing musicians and amazing songwriters who really had just lived a lot more life than I had and had a lot more depth in their songs. And so I just really felt so you have despondent. big name musicians and you're 18. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and you're trying to give them advice, and presumably. No, I wasn't trying to give anyone advice, but I just was trying to, to, to give the label what they wanted. But it was a it was a really amazing experience. But uh but yeah, my record it sold something like ten thousand copies and then they said, Yeah, next. Right. So I got dropped at that point. Ten thousand um, would be a triumph now. It would be a it? triumph. <laughs> yeah. You'd be chairlifted, you know. You'd be carried shell yeah. shoulder high around Nashville, wouldn't you? Selling ten thousand. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would. That would definitely not disappoint me. All right. Yeah. So, so you, um, after that record, what what happened? You became a kind of house songwriter. Yeah, I mean, I've, what I've managed to do is sort of parlay um, my limited success from one contract to another. Kind of like I keep getting traded from team to team, from you publisher, know, by to publisher, publisher to publisher, and and they pay you a salary and you write songs for them, and and it's a great job. So if you like to you, do what I do. It's the kind of classic. It's very interesting. We've got mm. a sort of all, an almost romantic image of this. Yeah, how songwriter. Yeah, you go into some great office building which is yeah. says outside Acme Music. Yeah, yeah, and there's loads of cells in there yeah. with pianos, and there's two people staring at each other. Trying yeah. to write a song. Is that basically how it that's works? That's basically it. Yeah, that's Clocking it. Clocking on, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I would, not, 9 would be a little early, okay. but I would clock, clock it at 11, yeah. And how productive do you find it, that kind of way of working? Well, I like to I like to work with with um, with artists. I like to work with artists, like younger artists, and, and that, that have something to say and want to and wanna make a song, and I can maybe um, kind of help the process along, you know. I took that... Enneagram test. It's like a personality test. Have you heard of this? No, no, go on. And they ask you a bunch of multiple choice questions, and I don't know whether you... But anyway, my result was that I'm a number two. It's like there's nine personality types you can have, and I'm a number two, which oddly is a, is a helper. And and what I like to do is I like to help, uh, you know, I like to help, so... So the the artist help. the artist has a beginnings of an idea, but you're the kind of person who can help them move it. Forward yeah, I like to, to do that. Yeah, and so I like to work with the artists. What I don't like to do is to write for like a brief, whereas you get a couple people in a room. Right, we're writing a song for Leona Lewis. Here we go. Uh, you know, because in my experience, it just doesn't going to happen unless she's sitting there to to, to write it right, with you. Right. So, which any names that we would know that you've you've written with? Well, I have had uh, songs recorded by some country artists that I don't know if your readers would care about, but Leanne Womack uh, recorded right. a song of mine. Keith Urban sings background vocals on it. Um, Ronnie Dunn cut a song. Um, but Josh Rouse has recorded a lot of songs I've written with him, and they've done really well for me. Um, uh, a guy, um, 
called Donovan Frankenreiter, the surfer guy out in L.A. We wrote some songs together, and he's recorded some of them. Um, so, but, you know, I've really only been doing this in a concerted way for a couple of years. So it takes a while before you, you know, you get that really um, professional touch, you right. know. And, and meanwhile, I'm also making my own records, which takes a lot of time. Yeah. So I'm not purely just devoted to writing for right. other artists. Right. So. But you're over here writing with other artists mm-hmm. in the UK for That's a few right. days. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, tell us about the Silver Seas, who started life mm-hmm. as the Bees. That's right. Yeah. And I kind of, you know, part of me really wishes we had just kept that name because we had a publicist who said, insisted that we change the name. Because you know? there was a UK band. Because there was a UK band. But we used the name in 1999 before that band had ever used it. And, and But then I've realized there's a band from the 60s called the Bees, too. Probably. So, so we just, we could, we put the U.S. at the end of it. And, and I wish we'd kept it. But, but anyway. So yeah. it was you and, and a bunch of similarly placed Nashville-based musicians. Yeah, it's a bunch of guys, and like you know, I was like living in Love Circle at the time, and I was writing these songs, and 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 just sort of smoking a lot of pot and looking out the window, and kind of these guys would come by, and there was a drummer who I'd seen play, who who I really wanted to do something with, and that was David Gerke, and and so I said, let's make a record, and and Jason Lenning was beginning to engineer at that point, and he said, well, I'll produce it, and that was how the first record kind of came about. Now, the first record is what? High Society, or was there a record before? There was a record before that um, uh, called Stargazy Pie, that that we, you know, both High Society and Stargazy Pie were were basically recorded in a weekend, and then we did the background vocals in an overdub session. Right, right. But, um, yeah, we would get, uh, you know, off hours in studios. We went into um, to, to Sound Emporium and, and recorded those songs. And, and um, yeah, we, we, we hit on something that, that people liked, I think, with, those, with the 12-string. And I was determined to keep the electric guitar out of the picture until this most recent one. Which right. So the last one was Shatter Revenge. Slightly, That's right. Slightly more involved record. More you, involved, you yeah. Had a kind of, you had a bit of a vision with that, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, I... I, I I was doing a lot of elaborate stuff on other people's music as a, as a hired musician, and I thought, I want to make something elaborate of my own, you know, because I, I really put all these limitations on it, you know, and, and, and I just thought, well, I'm going to just let the, let the horse out of the barn. <laughs> right, right. So, but then you've subsequently, you sent me recently, I think, mm-hmm. your new record on your own right. Right, that's right. based on the movie Arthur. Right. What is this to do with the Russell Brand well, Arthur that's just come out in the UK? You know, I got a I got a call from a friend at Warner Brothers Pictures looking for songs for the Arthur, the new Arthur film, and I and so I started watching the old one, and, which is Dudley Moore which with, made with, in the early with Dudley 80s Moore and Liza Minnelli and John Gilgood, and, and uh, uh, so I started watching the old one and, and thought this is fantastic, and these song ideas started coming to me, and they weren't really necessarily based on the characters, but just inspired by the energy of it and and of course christopher cross and and um and and burt backrack's wonderful song um you know the, the best that you can do yeah, yeah. yeah arthur's theme was really did burn itself into my brain as a young boy so I, there was that part of it too but anyway fast forward she doesn't use any of my songs but i've got all these songs <laughs> left over and so i was looking for a title to name them and i you know i may not end up being able to legally name the album arthur but, uh sure i may have knows. to name it something else oh I really know. i don't know so you're gonna play you're gonna play us a tune from arthur what i could play you a tune from arthur uh is there any particular well no, i guess on, i better you not say one. that i mean yeah. <laughs> uh maybe i'll play a song called wine dark sea Mm, let's see if I can make it through. Mm-hmm. 
I was going nowhere Drifting in the currents Listing sideways Drifting from wave to wave I fell asleep on an island Woke up sunburned on the ocean Like some drunken Napoleon Their cash pioneer Oh my wine My wine dark sea For my love I've chosen thee forever In your arms On your wild sea I have found paradise I made a raft of branches And I filled a rustic canteen from crystal stream And I set out on the tide It must be quite familiar This feeling of abandonment Oh, I've taken quickly To the life of a shipwrecked man Oh, my wine Oh, my wine sails one morning could be my only chance at rescue what's become of me why do I hide behind the waves oh my wine my wine tuxedo for my love I've chosen thee forever That's from uh, that's from the record that you don't know whether you can call it Arthur yet. Thank it's, you. It's inspired <laughs> Thank you. by. That's right. It's inspired by uh, Arthur. I, I suppose there's no chance of us seeing the Silver Seas over here, is there? Playing. Well, you I did do this, didn't you? You played once. We didn't played, you? and and we had a really great time. And I hope that we'll be invited back. We almost got a big tour this year, um, but. Uh, at the last minute, they decided to sort of switch to maybe a band that wasn't as good as us as, in terms of. <laughs> I can imagine that. Yeah. So, but but I, but I, I wouldn't count us completely out yet as right. far as coming back over here to do some festivals. Do you play so. much in the states? We do um, mainly in Nashville, and you know we did a we did a short northeastern tour a couple uh, years ago, and um, you know the touring is the weakest component of this organization because everybody these guys are such prima donnas you wouldn't believe the kind of kind of like thread count that they demand. <laughs> so these are these are the gentlemen of a certain to style. To get everything they, they... in line and in and in lockstep is like trying to get coordinate like a like a bunch of passenger ships all in a you know it's like everybody's so I mean and Jason, you know, but having said that, I'm also probably the most guilty of being a little bit like crustacean right. that way but I'm but I'm learning. I I've, I've just gotten married and I have a young beautiful wife and she's really kind of 
you know, prodding me out of that kind Get of behavior. Get out of the house. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> along those lines. Yeah. yeah. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Um, before that, you heard uh, Daniel Tashin of the Silver Seas uh, doing a tune from the last, uh, well, his own solo record, actually, which is based on the, the movie Arthur. And I have to say, just one thing to throw in. That evening, he came and did uh, True Stories Told Live around the corner of the pub. And we have one storyteller who, who does a tune. And uh, he did a wonderful tune called Kid, which is on the, the last track on Shatter Revenge, which I always thought was a wonderful song. It was only when he explained the story, it was written about his brother-in-law and about his brother-in-law's unfortunate experience at a high school prom, that the whole thing just opened up completely. And everybody who heard that song was absolutely enchanted by it. And I was talking to him afterwards, you know, about this, this whole thing that songwriters don't, I think, set enough store by the importance of just setting up a song in an introduction. You know what I mean? They're, they're very kind of nervous about it. They don't like going there, do they, at all? You know, he said to me, he obviously works in Nashville. He says, the problem is, if you spend a lot, if you talk in Nashville, you sort of feel that the musicians and the audience are going, come on, get on with it. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. Well, no, I think there's two things there. I think one is that a lot of songwriters think that <clears throat> the song ought to be able to be self-explanatory. It ought to be a self-contained unit that survives on its own and should not require an introduction. And I think they also think there's another school of songwriter who has started to use that as a, uh, as a live performance format. And you and I have seen quite a few of these. Ray Davies does it very well. James, James Taylor, Taylor does it. Well. Yeah, loud and Wayne right, Loud and Wayne brilliantly. Um, where, you know, actually what the song is is ultimately the illustration to a brief narrative, a brief monologue, and then you end with the song. And so they can't quite make that change. And also, you're absolutely right, there are live audiences who are not going to tolerate something. Well, I don't, I, you see, I don't know, think most... Volume. Well, obviously, if you're just droning on in an unprepared fashion, which a lot of musicians do. Yeah. They, you know, they start the introduction with no idea where they're going at all. Yeah. And it's full of ums and ahs and meanders and so forth. Whereas if it's a well-told anecdote, you know, this next song is about, you know what I mean... I think people listen perfectly happily because nowadays you've got access to the music absolutely any way you need it. They, you know, the thing that you get in the it. live performance is the, you know, we always used to say this, you know, you, the, if you talk to a teenager who's been to the first gig, then what do they always say? He talked to us. Oh, yeah. It's like magic. He spoke well, to us. Or they, me, com- or they, compl- oh, well, or they complain me. that they haven't been spoken to. I just, yeah. Boy, do they complain oh, that yeah. they haven't been spoken to. And but I think, think musicians so undervalue this. And so much of music journalism is based on that question of what's it's the story behind the song? What's yeah, the song yeah, about? I mean, yeah. that, that, and once you know, there's a lovely bit in Keith Richards' book where they write uh, Brown Sugar and Mick Jagger writes the lyrics in, one, in almost one take. And they're watching him do this, and he writes how many verses there are, six or seven. He just pretty much writes them in one go, and they record it in something like two takes. And even that, although that's not discovering... Well, it tells you what the song's about, to the, the whorehouse and all the images of that. But even the fact that I know now that that song was recorded in that kind of compressed, supercharged way has changed the way I look at that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I heard it on the radio the other so day. Once you've... Once you've heard a story explaining it, yeah, you never get it out of your head. Now, some people may think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good No, I, I, I don't agree. James Taylor does a wonderful song called The Frozen Man. And he tells a long story about... It's about, a, I think, a Norwegian sailor or something who died of flu up in the permafrost in the Arctic Circle a hundred years ago. Still was there. buried uh, in a shallow grave. Yeah. And he's effectively still there. Fantastic. Know? And he turns it into a song about not being able to die. 
Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And, and to me, it just massively it enhances it. it. Yeah. But I suppose it just demonstrates what a verbal person I am. That, you know, the story, to me, is almost as valuable as the music. But it also allows the song to be more poetic. Once you know what it's yeah. about, you can then you can go off on a tangent. But yeah. if, if you've got to explain the nuts and bolts and mechanics of what the song's about, then it's going to be rather prosaic intro, yeah, isn't yeah. it? So Very anyway, uh, questions from The Massive. We've been asking on Twitter. Lucas Hare, good question. Oh, Lucas Hare, excellent. Is there a little car with the hair on it? Do you remember? Yes. <laughs> Superb. He says... Is there a genre of music more ravaged by snobbery, that's well put, ravaged by snobbery, than country music? Even the Stones always had to do it tongue-in-cheek. What do you think? It is, isn't it? Uh, um, yeah, I would suppose so. Country music yes. is a joke to most people. It is, but, but it, it ha- they had to invent alt-dot-country to <laughs> legitimise... Somebody invented that to make it okay because somehow the long riders are fantastic. Dolly Parton is a just ludicrous confection. Yeah. But actually, Dolly Parton's songs are about something far more real, I have to tell you, than the long riders' songs. Yeah, absolutely. Really Dolly, Dolly Parton's about lived domestic it. ding-dongs that she's actually lived. Yeah. Long riders have just uh, heard a load of Dolly Parton records <laughs> and appropriated that in easy fashion. I almost, honestly, I, I almost you know, reach across the room and grab the radio when people start. That common cliche, you know, their country, but not in the sense of people singing about their dead dogs. Find me a bloody song about somebody singing about their dirt dogs. I've heard millions of country records. There aren't any at all. You know what I mean? The idea that country is somehow more ludicrous than indie music or dance music or heavy metal is just a fucking preposterous idea, isn't it? I'm going to have to find a record called My Dog. My Dog is Deceased. <laughs> Bring it in next week. Yeah. OK, Matthew J. Somebody Elliot. told me, by the way, a Go brilliant on. story. Bruce Finley, an old friend of mine who I saw was in Scotland last week. Yeah. Bruce Finley, Bruce's Records, yeah, yeah. brilliant manager of He's Simple Vines. He put the string band, Bruce put them together. Yeah. Tell me this wonderful story about how um, uh, John Peel had gone into a record shop and asked for a record and they realised, oh, God, which record was it? It might have been One Stop, actually. And they realised that Peel was asking for a record that didn't exist just because he wanted them to go, yeah, no problem, we'll go and get it. (laughs) And what they did, only when he'd gone, they realised, actually, that group doesn't exist. And so they manufactured a record and with a label on that, which I knew the name of the group. So when he went in the next week, he said, by the way, we've got your um, alternative <laughs> hey! Weasel album. And so it was like 15 all. Brilliant. Brilliant. I, brilliant. I love all those, those games. Oh, no. Didn't somebody once do the thing where they, they kind of made up a load of albums? They packaged them up, they designed them, and then they put them in the racks at HMV. As a kind of art statement. Oh, uh, yeah, Banksy Inventing. did it with, uh, I think it was it Lady Gaga or Britney Spears or something oh, right. like that. <laughs> I like that kind of thing. Brilliant. Michael uh, Matthew Elliott says... It's, it's a bit of a fashion note. What sort of hat is it, it is, is it acceptable for a chap to wear out and about in this unseasonably warm weather? <laughs> what sort of hat is OK for I, I'm not a hat wearer. I'm not qualified oh, to answer that. It's difficult. You've got to be a certain stature to carry off the hat. I think you've got to be quite tall to carry off a hat. I can't do you've it. You've got to be quite tall. I think it's, a kind of, it's that kind of straw hat with a single thin band. I once saw Humphrey Littleton uh, wearing one at a, an outdoor jazz concert a long time ago. He's a bad example because he doesn't sound very cool, does he? But he was, actually. <laughs> he was a big bloke as well. And a big bloke, but he looked terrific. It's a sort of hat that I suppose he might have also been playing bowls in. It's our man in Havana. It's kind of our man in Havana, exactly. Yeah, GBP, uh, GPB78 says the L Grey Whistle Test should return. Disgust. <laughs> 
No. Like, well, <laughs> Top of the Pops has come back, but unfortunately they've brought it back starting in 1976, haven't they? So maybe they should bring the old grey whistle uh, test back. They chronologically start with Richard Williams. It's not going to happen, and no. you wouldn't like it if you, if it did, really. Do, they, um, no, do we ever talk about our idea for the revising the programme? I think we did, didn't we? What that? about the two old fogies sitting by one who they have been sitting around a fire? That's remember? Just. Yeah, that's right. You know, talking about it, telling funny stories about Robert Palmer <laughs> and, uh, and and sharing a huge pot. It was going to be called the, the old grey whistle. <laughs> <laughs> That's toasting crumpets. <laughs> Chink of China. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, and finally, from The Colour, Led Zeppelin are the American version of The Who. Discuss. Blimey. Uh, huh? God, The Colour, that's... Whoa. Um, what do I think about that? <coughs> that's a tr- that's tricky one. Well, who's going to go first? Um, ooh. Hmm. Is that the time? If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent every month. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 